Yes, that might work. Okay. Um, so why don't we just go around the room? People can say their names. Um, and do you all know each other? No. Okay, so good. So it won't just be for me. Um, Jenny, what's your name? My name's Jenny. Yay. I'm a graduate student, and I'm leaving at 3. Okay. Um, in general or no, today? No, today. Okay. And Ryan, what's your name? Ryan. <laughs> also a graduate student. Um, uh, my name's Max. Okay. Yeah, just say uh, what, also what you're majoring in. I'm an English major. Okay. I'm Ariel, American Studies in English. Meg, physics. Physics. Um, all right. Is this a requirement or is this good? That's great. <laughs> cool. Um, I'm Jafara and I'm a creative writing major. I'm Olivia. I'm an English major. Hi. Okay. Well, uh, welcome. So this is uh, the a course in the early Romantics, and. Um, what we're probably going to do, partly we're going to um, balance, we, I don't have a syllabus yet, but that's partly because any syllabus right, any syllabus right now uh, would be um, tentative, so I will give you a tentative syllabus um, next week. We have class on Tuesday, which is a Brandeis Monday. Um, uh, it all starts up yet again. Um, not as bad as last fall, but still. Um, so I will either have put one up on latte or bring one into class or both um, then. But basically, we're doing the three, basically, but not entirely, we're doing the three major um, romantic poets of the um, first generation of romantic poets. So... Um, uh, we'll talk in a little while about what Romanticism um, is or might be, um, but the they're essentially um, in the periods of English literature in which you have um, an astonishing concentration of really great writers. Um, those periods are basically around 1600, which is say around Shakespeare, and then again around. 1800 through 1820, which is um, in the age of Romanticism. Um, and the uh, Romantic poets are, the oldest of them is Blake, who was born in 1757, um, of the big six, and there's there always is a big six. It's an age of really great women writers as well, um, but they tend not to be writing poetry, they tend to be writing novels. Um, and in fact, it's probably the beginning of the end for poetry as the major literary form in English. Um, with the 19th century, the novel becomes the major literary form in English, as now the major literary form in English is film and video and TV. Um, but um, Romanticism is um, the, the last... Um, time when it was clear um, that poetry was still the major form. Um, novels are very close on its heels now as the major form. Um, the great novelist of the time, there are many of them, but the greatest of them all is Jane Austen. Um, but among the poets, the big six poets are male. Um, Blake is the oldest of them. He was born in 1757 and died in 1827. Um, so he died at the age of 69, just before he would have turned 70. 
Um, and then Wordsworth was born in 1770 and died in 1850 um, at the age of 80. Um, but most people think of him as having essentially died by around 1815. Um, and um, um, nevertheless, he biologically... He lived till um, 1850. He saw the coming of trains. He saw the coming of photography. Um, he experienced all that. Um, and then Coleridge, who was born two years after Wordsworth in 1772 and died in 1834. Um, the second generation of romantics who were, who were strongly affected by the first generation, especially by Wordsworth and Coleridge. Blake was not well known until um, the later part of the 19th century. Um, the second generation, but he knew them. He knew, uh, he knew the work of Coleridge and Wordsworth, especially of Wordsworth. Um, the second generation of romantics are Byron, who was born in 1788 and died in 1823. Shelley, born in 1792 and died at the age of 29 in 1822. And Keats, who was born in 1795 and died in 1821. The reason I'm giving you these dates is because it's almost perfect um, bracketings of times. That is, Keats was the last one born and the first one to die. Shelley was born a little bit before Keats and died just a little bit after Keats. Um, Byron was born a little bit before Shelley. Byron and Shelley were best friends, and he died um, a little bit after Shelley. Um, Coleridge was born two years after Wordsworth and died 16 years before Wordsworth. And then Wordsworth um, was born 13 years after Blake, but he actually survived Blake. So, so that's, that's the only place where the brackets don't work. Um, Shelley, in um, one of his anti-Wordsworth poems, and he wrote a lot of them, um, because Wordsworth thought he was still alive. And Shelley was kind of angry that Wordsworth would think that, given that he wasn't. Um, so he wrote, wrote a lot of anti-current Wordsworth poetry, anti-the Wordsworth of Shelley's um, youth and maturity. Um, uh, writes about how um, someone who dies at age 30 might have lived more and thought more and experienced more than someone who burns himself out at the age of 80 or 90. And that seems to be prophetic. Um, that is, that Shelley did die just before 30, and Wordsworth, he was explicitly thinking of Wordsworth as someone who went on and on and on, um, despite having turned against everything that he that counted for him and everything that he cared about when he was younger. So most of Wordsworth's poetry no one reads. Um, and um, that's because most of it is really bad. Um, but I mean, it's, it's technically accomplished, but really bad. But that's Wordsworth after the age of 40 or so. Um, and there's some good poems that he wrote after the age of 40, one spectacularly good one, and um, some really good ones. Um, but mostly he's writing poems like the Sonnets on the Punishment of Death, which is why the death penalty is a good thing, a series of sonnets, and um, a sonnet against the secret ballot, why um, letting people vote without telling the, those in power who they're, who they're voting for so that they can be forced to vote um, in the way their bosses want them to vote, that's a really bad thing for society. 
Um, so that's what Wordsworth turned into. We're going to try to forget that um, and look at Wordsworth in his young and noble and radical days um, before um, he became what Shelley so lamented. Shelley actually has a sonnet to Wordsworth um, where he says, I read your poetry and I felt that um, we were talking about the same thing, the loss of everything that mattered um, in childhood as you grow older and um, how you cope with this loss. But I have to tell you, I've lost more than you have um, because um, um, you didn't have a Wordsworth to lose, but I did. And um, once you turned into what you are now, um, that was even worse um, for me. Um, so a lot of the later poets, and this will include us, or at least the poets among us, which I include um, Tafara. Um, are there other people in the class who are poets? Um, yes. Okay, so. Well, I, I don't have like, books of poetry. Published. No, no, you don't count as a poet. You count as a poet. I don't write much either. So. so you're perfect as a poet. That's exactly what it means to be a poet. Um, um, uh, we feel the loss of the later Wordsworth and. Um, um, we think hard about the earlier Wordsworth. Blake, as I say, is a little bit of an outlier. This is by no means a lecture course. I just want to give you a, a very brief um, uh, historical background because we won't be doing history in this class, um, I hope. Um, I thought we would do history in the 18th century class, but we did. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, Blake, as I say, is something of an outlier. He's older, and he was a rad vastly radical original figure in the poetry that he wrote. And um, he was, but he's partly interesting because it turns out he's thinking about the same things that Wordsworth and Coleridge are going to be thinking about um, 15 years, 10 years after Blake, um, but independently of Blake. Um, Wordsworth and Coleridge were very close friends for a very long time, and in 1798, this is something that we'll be talking about, they published a book with the wonderful title... Lyrical Ballads. Lyrical Ballads, um, which is probably the most revolutionary book of poetry of the last 250 years. And um, we'll be reading a lot of lyrical ballads. They publish it anonymously, so um, it's not made clear in this first edition of 1798 um, who has written which poems, or in fact, that how many authors there are for this book of poems, whether it's one or two or many. Um, the idea of ballads is ballads are things that are part of the culture and that people learn anonymously, and um, there is no single writer of ballads. Um, the idea of lyric is that um, there's no good definition of what a lyric poem is, but um, a bad definition is that it's a poem spoken um, by a first-person speaker who is describing some intense feeling that he or she has about some intense um, situation, intense but recognizable situation. Um, the person I love has died, or the person I love um, hates me, um, or the things that matter to me um, are gone. 
um, something like that. So um, lyrics and ballads are, in a way, the opposite kinds of poems. Um, do, do If I say ballads, is that something that's familiar to you? I don't mean ballads like rock song ballads, although I do, but ballads in the 18th century sense of the term. Um, not really. Um, sorry? Vaguely. Vaguely is okay. Ballads often tell supernatural stories. So they'll be about um, how um, uh, someone was arrogant and then um, they're arrogant, they got paid for their arrogance by dying. Um, or how someone trusted someone they shouldn't have trusted and they got paid for that trust by dying. Or um, often it'll be some crows talking about someone who is arrogant who got paid for that arrogance by dying. They tend to end with by dying. Um, <laughs> and um, they are, um, they rarely, they, they're, they're always... Um, fascinating. They're easy to remember because they're both powerful and in a kind of simple form, um, but in powerful language. And um, the very fact that they're anonymous means that they're passed down from generation to generation, from mother to child over the course sometimes of hundreds and hundreds of years. And what gets passed down is what's remembered. That is, they're powerful because they're oral and because they're remembered. Yeah. What is the difference then between them and fables? Um, fables tend to be prose. And, and fables are, are, ballads often have what look like morals, um, but it's often hard to tell what the moral is. Um, it's hard to believe, for example, that a moral like um, don't trust your mother because she may be trying to kill you is one that we really need in, um, in most everyday life, or that most mothers are trying to teach their children. Like, you know, don't believe flatterers and don't trust me. Um, the don't believe flatterers, that's what you get in fable. Um, you know, the, the um, fox and the crow, for example. Um, but in ballads, what you get is, um, I think what's great about them, maybe I'll bring a couple in when we start doing lyrical ballads, but I think what's great about them is the sense that they give you of... Um, um, a supernatural world, um, but not supernatural uh, in the sense that um, there are lots of ghosts out there and be careful, but rather supernatural in that uh, the world is a world of inexorable fate. And there are beings in the world, often crows, um, no, really, it is often crows, crows or ravens, who will speak of that fate. Um, because they belong to the natural world, but they can speak. So they're kind of, um, to use a phrase that will come up in the 19th century um, by a friend of Wordsworth's, um, there's a kind of natural supernaturalism in talking crows and in talking ravens. When Poe writes The Raven, um, he's thinking back on that. You all know, the, do you know Nevermore? You all know The Raven saying Nevermore. Um, but... Um, what they talk about is what the world is like. And what the world is like is a place of um, uh, error among those who think that they are exempt from its rules. Um, no one is exempt from the rules of the world. And the rules of the world are 
that life is hard and you don't get what you want and you should understand that this is true for everyone instead of thinking that you, uh, instead of making yourself an arrogant exception. Um, and um, um, so if there is a moral, it's don't think that you're an arrogant exception to the way life works. Yeah. 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 Um, so, like, I'm really fascinated by Hitchcock's The Birds. Uh-huh. Did you, like... They don't talk, though. I know, but they kind of have, like, a supernatural, like, presence. Like, especially, like, the scene when they're, like, attacking her. Yeah. It, it really reminded me of Edgar Allan Poe. Of the Raven. Yeah. Like, attacking her. Yeah, I think that... Um, well, the Raven doesn't really attack, but it's mean. Um, it, it it keeps saying nevermore when, whenever the um, speaker stupidly asks a question to which you don't want nevermore to be the answer. Um, what you want is something like, um, and can I expect you to be here tomorrow? And the raven would say nevermore, and then you'd say great. Um, but he doesn't figure that out, unfortunately. Um, but... The, no, that that would be exactly the natural supernaturalism part of it. They're not got, they're not horror stories, um, in which um, things that you can, you know, parts of nature that you pay no attention to start attacking you. They're rather stories um, in which natural observers, um, um, who nevertheless look a little uncanny, like ravens or crows are observing accurately um, what the world is really like. Um, but I'll bring in a couple of ballads. Um, so, uh, the, the, we have, we'll, we'll have to look at them um, when we look at some of Coleridge's ballads. Um, so The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, for example, is a ballad. Um, and then he has a poem which begins by quoting a ballad. Um, it's his poem called Dejection and Ode. And it begins with a quotation from the Ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, um, which is an ancient English ballad. Um, and he quotes the lines, Last night I saw the new moon with the old moon in her arms, and I fear, I fear, my master dear, that we shall come to harm. And um, the idea is, if you know Red Sky at Morning, Sailor Take Warning, Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, um, the idea is actually that if you have a very clear night, if the night is very clear, that's a prognostication in weather forecasting, um, in, um, um, for sailors going way, way, way back in um, the northern latitudes, that a clear night means a very windy and possibly a stormy next day. Um, so if you can see the new moon with the old moon in her arms, does anyone know what that would mean? You can see it on very clear nights of a new moon. Um, if you Oh, is it when you can sort of see the whole shadow? So a half or a fragment is lit up, mm -hmm. but you know that the whole thing's there. Exactly. So it's when you see a crescent moon, that's the new moon. Um, and if you see a crescent moon um, on a very clear night, you can see the dark disk of the entire moon. Um, has anyone seen that? You've seen it? Yeah. So that's, that is um, uh, um, an image that fascinated a lot of people. 
Um, and it was called, this isn't a poetic term, it was simply called um, seeing the new moon with the old moon, um, in, in the, the old moon in the arms of the new moon. And um, uh, Shelley later will talk about it, how um, uh, the moon will, um, carrying the, as, as when a moon, as when a new moon carrying the ghost of her dead mother doth appear. That's a line from a poem of Shelley's. So there it's the old moon, it's the dead mother of the new moon. So in Sir Patrick Spence, it's last night I saw the new moon with the old moon in her arms, and I fear my, I fear my master dear. In one version, it's we shall have a dreadful storm. In another version, it's and we shall come to harm. And then Coleridge begins the poem, well, it's a good start for a poem, well, if the bard was weather-wise that made the grand old ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, um, tomorrow shall be a stormy day. That's how it begins. So he, he's writing this ode in which he quotes a ballad and then says that's exactly the way it looks now, um, this evening as I'm writing this ballad. Um, I look at the moon, it's a clear night, I see the disc of the old moon, and I think of this ballad, um, and I quote the ballad that I'm thinking of, and then start writing the story. So the ballad of Sir Patrick Spence is how Sir Patrick Spence never comes back from the mission that he is sent on. And um, nature is telling him that he won't come back. Here, perfectly naturally, that is, it's a sign of a storm coming. Um, but also the fact that nature tells you that a storm is coming gives a kind of voice to nature. So ballads, in a way, what's supernatural about them is that um, natural objects are given voices, but they're not given agency beyond um, the kind of agency they have anyhow, everyday agency. Um, through the fact that they're given voices, it's, it's just that their um, presence in nature is now a knowing one. They understand They're what's given going consciousness on. rather than... Yeah, but even consciousness gives you a sense that it might be their point of view. Mm. And there's no interest in their point of view. So it's more like they're given authority. Um, author um, authority in as truth-tellers um, rather than um, first-person consciousness. It's like the Greek chorus yeah, except the choruses are always depressed and whining, um, whereas the crows and ravens aren't. They're simply observing, sometimes with a little bit of scorn, um, but, it, but they're simply observing. Um, so the idea of a lyric, and, and that, that's one reason why it's, it's good to say that they're not giving consciousness, because the idea of a lyrical ballad is almost an oxymoron, which is that you have a lyric, um, someone describing... Um, a loss that they've undergone, um, but it's often told in the form of a ballad. So what you get are a lot of first-person ballads, and one thing about ballads is they are, by their nature, I, don't th I, I wouldn't say there aren't any first-person ballads, but they are, by their nature, third-person kinds of poetry. Um, a ballad is not someone um, describing how they feel about the world. Um, they're describing the truth. And they're powerful in simple, powerful in their simplicity, um, simple in their power, because they are what's remembered, as I say, down the generations, um, the parts that are not um, 
good poetry, powerful poetry, um, are the parts that get forgotten. Um, if you remember um, poems from your childhood, um, you remember the ones that work, and, you, and there's a natural filtering process um, that, that um, only lets the powerful ones through. And, um, but they're given to you, they're learned as authoritative speech by another, um, by the person who recites the ballad to you. But even so, you know they're reciting a ballad. They're not um, describing themselves or their own view. They're telling you a truth about um, the world or about nature or about the environment um, and its relation to us little humans. And so lyrical ballad is taking that and then doing a completely different kind of poem, which is a poem about how a person um, thinks or feels, but the sense of universality from the ballad, both in form and in content, is something that then um, survives in the lyric. Um, so they're not lyrics in which we are getting a vivid picture of the personality of the poet, for example, um, the way you might in, um, even in a poet like Kay Ryan, um, what, um, and certainly in a poet like Louise Glick, um, what we're given is um, a picture of um, what it is to be a consciousness in the world, but a generalizable picture of that. That is, it's not what it's like to be William Wordsworth. It's when he starts writing poetry, which is about what it's like to be um, William Wordsworth, that maybe he starts going off. Now that, I'm, I'm going to make, th this is in a way as misleading a thing as you can say about Wordsworth because you do get a strong picture of what it's like to be William Wordsworth in some of his great autobiographical poems, one of which will, the greatest of which will read, which is the prelude. Um, you do get a picture of what it's like to be him. Um, but only to the extent that um, what he's describing is a particular way um, that you could um, come to poetic vocation, um, but a way that is going to be um, uh, mutatis mutandis, um, that is changing what needs changing to make it fit, true for any poet um, um, who has poetic vocation. So people, read, people don't read Wordsworth's autobiographical poem to, poems to find out more about Wordsworth's life, um, not in the slightest. Uh, they read Wordsworth's autobiographical poem um, and poems because, in a sense, they're, to quote Gertrude Stein, everybody's autobiography or every poet's autobiography. And the specifics are um, specifics that it's not that hard um, to um, um, imagine as um, imagine relevantly. Imagine the way Wordsworth um, imagines them. Um, they are, the specifics are what you would um, also notice if you were in his um, situation and his position. So he's not talking, you know, he talks about going to university. That's one of the specifics that he gives. Um, and so he goes to Cambridge and you go to Brandeis. It's fine. 
Um, it's not like, oh yes, Cambridge was, you know, th this great institution. And um, he does mention some of the people who went to Cambridge, um, um, in particular Milton and Isaac Newton, but um, it's only that they, that it was thrilling to be at a place um, where they had been. Um, and he goes to France and sees part of the French Revolution. But again, it's not, you're not going to learn anything or very little at any rate about the French Revolution from Wordsworth's account of his experience of the French Revolution. Um, so the lyrical part is not so much about an autobiographical person, even in Wordsworth's most autobiographical poems, and he's the most autobiographical of the po poets we'll be reading. They're not about him as a person. Um, they're about him as a poet, and or him as someone saturated in poetry. So if you're reading Wordsworth, it's because you too are saturated in poetry, whether you're or you're taking a class. Um, but if you're reading Wordsworth, it's because you two are saturated in poetry, whether you're a poet or not. Or another way to put it is to say that Wordsworth and Coleridge, in fact, don't, and Blake certainly, don't make much of a distinction between reading poetry and writing poetry. Um, they're both aspects of poetic vocation. And um, they also don't make much of a distinction between writing poetry and being a human being. Um, their writing poetry is a way of um, just intensifying what it means to be a human being. Um, so, like, what is like the difference between the people like who wrote lyrical ballads and the confessional poets of the fifties? Um, so that that's a really good question, and the um, the overlap is the intense concentration on first-person experience and also on memory, um, which is um, what the confessional poets, um, if you're thinking of someone like Robert Lowell, for example, or John Berryman, um, are doing. Um, the difference is um, that it's, when you read someone like Lowell, you admire Lowell for being Lowell. Um, or you despise him for being Lowell, as many people do. Um, but you don't often feel, I mean, what, what you're doing is you're seeing, without there being anything derogatory in saying this, what you're seeing is an amazing performance. That is a performance of a poet who is also, um, you know, bearing himself to the world and, um, and bearing his family's deep, deepest secrets to the world. Um, and he's a dramatic character in that sense. Um, Wordsworth and Coleridge and Blake are not dramatic characters in that sense. Um, what they are um, doing is uh, describing much more general, much more easily generalized human feelings. So um, what confessional poets do you like? Sylvia Okay. And uh, Anne Sexton. Yeah. So I think people like Plath and Sexton are um, just great at giving you um, models or analogs or um, examples of extremely courageous self-exposure. Um, um, but the selves they're exposing are to some extent different from the self you would expose if you wrote in that way. Um, so the self-exposure 
would be similar. Um, the difficulty of self-exposure, the painfulness, uh, the painfulness it responds to, let's say, um, that would be similar. But the thing actually exposed, the specifics of it, matter a lot in Plath and Sexton. Um, and um, they're, um, they matter a lot less in Wordsworth and Coleridge. The specifics do. Um, so that would be uh, the difference between them. But you'll see. I mean, this is just, I'm just trying to give you a, a, um, a, a, a quick um, example of, um, or, or, or a quick, quick attempt to orient here. Um, and um, as you'll see, one of the, one of the things that's really, really important um, and central to what they're doing um, is memory. But here, I have some, so let me just say, uh, here's a handout. Um, it's two-sided. Um, and uh, let me say briefly um, what, how the course will work, which is that um, there's, there's no exam. Um, the, um, there, you can write um, one or two papers, and um, instead of one of the papers, you can do a memorization. Um, of about <laughs> see we didn't do it in 18th century no, poetry we did. we did Chaucer though yes we did um, um, you can do memorization um, if you want to write a 3,000 word paper for the um, 3,000 word uh, paper requirement for the English major for this class you can um, so, so um, if you write this is you guys don't listen the grads, grad students are different um, as we all know um, but if you um, write two papers, it should be a total of 3,000 words. If you write one paper in a memorization, the paper should be 1,500 words. Um, if you write one paper and no memorization, it's 3,000. You can also do 3,000 plus memorization for extra credit. And um, the will kind of sort of be giving... Um, not quite equal time to the three major poets we'll be doing. Um, that is, uh, Coleridge will probably get the least amount of time. Um, we'll probably spend, um, um, I mean, we're going to be flexible. That's why I say probably. And uh, we'll just see how into um, various poets you guys get. Um, but right now I'm thinking about five weeks on um, Blake, um, two weeks on Coleridge and six weeks on Wordsworth. Um, that about is partly because we're going to start with the first two books of Paradise Lost, um, which is at the bookstore. So that's something uh, to read over the weekend. Um, how many people have read Milton before? Um, okay, so for those... I have, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? I have also. Even though yeah. I've never been assigned Milton, yeah. Tom King was going to sign it, but then it dropped all the syllabus. This will be my first assigned. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Heavy responsibility for me. Um, okay, so let me just say for those of you who haven't, um, Milton at first seems really hard, and then he doesn't. And he seems really hard because his syntax is strange. Um, and you shouldn't worry about his being hard because he seemed hard to his contemporaries. Uh, when you get Paradise Lost, you can any version works, but um, the the Signet version in the bookstore um, is a good one and cheap. 
and has good notes. Um, any version of Paradise Lost you will see has um, what are called arguments, which are summaries of um, the book you're about to read at the beginning. And the reason they're there is Milton published Paradise Lost in 1667, and um, everyone said, we don't understand what's going on. And his publisher said, look, if this ever sells out, which I'm dubious of, but in fact it eventually did, um, and we do a second edition, you're going to have to do plot summaries at the start of each book of Paradise Lost so that people will know what's going on. So Paradise Lost comes with its own um, spark notes, um, and um, the plot summaries are actually kind of harder than the poetry, so that doesn't really help that much, um, but they're in prose. And... Um, what Paradise Lost, so, love, so for those of you who don't know it, what it tells, what it retells, is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That is, it retells the beginning of Genesis. And um, what happens, for those of you who don't know that, is that there's this serpent, see? And um, it tells Eve that you should eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, despite the fact that God has forbidden Adam and Eve from eating that fruit. Um, but the serpent says, no, eat it. Look, it made me able to talk. Think what it'll do for you. And so that's the first talking animal in um, the uh, tradition that English Romanticism comes out of. But this serpent is also a, um, a player and not just a talker. Um, so it's not like a crow saying, look, she's eating the apple. Um, it's um, the serpent encourages her to eat the, ap the apple. So that's a story told in Genesis. God then finds out um, that Adam and Eve have eaten the apple, either because he's omniscient, which is the later version, or because he's looking for them walking in the garden one day, and they hide, and he says, why are you hiding? And they say, because we're naked, and that seems wrong. And God then says, do you know what he says? He says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat that fruit that I told you not to eat? Um, anyone know um, this is just to say? Yes. So that's a 20th century version of <laughs> Paradise Lost. Yeah, I ate the fruit. Um, sorry. Sorry? He says sorry. Yeah. Um, this is just to say that I have eaten the plums um, that were in the icebox in which you were probably saving for breakfast. Yeah. Um, uh, um, they were so, um, they were delicious. They were so sweet. Uh, forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and cool. What? Are those the adjectives, sweet and cool? Tar I thought it was tart and sweet. No, it's definitely sweet, and, I'm, and cool. it's either cool or cold. Cool. Um, cold. Okay. Maybe cool. Um, look it up. Yeah. Jenny always says this is great, um, and she's usually right. No, no, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm just curious now. Cold, <laughs> cool, who knew? Um, so, um, forgive me, just the way Adam and Eve need forgiveness from God. So that's William Carlos Williams's version of that. It was an actual note that he left on an actual refrigerator, um, which, is, which goes to show how the fall of Adam and Eve are actual things that happen every day. Um, His wife responded with a poem. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. It's a, she has her own poem. That's like a. It's also really funny. Oh, okay, that's cool. Cold. Okay. Um, but not tart. 
no sweet problem. and cold. Yeah. Here, read the whole thing. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious. So sweet and so cold. Yes. I want to know the response. Yeah. Response yeah. yeah. I will work on that next. <laughs> Out of the garden, like, no more. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not, not allowed in the kitchen anymore. <laughs> um, so Milton begins Paradise Lost by describing what, um, how the serp, why the serpent, or giving you the backstory for why the serpent did this, which is that the serpent is actually Satan, or Satan has actually entered into the body of the serpent. And why is Satan doing this to Adam and Eve? Um, because Satan has um, lost a rebellion of rebel angels against um, God and the loyal angels in a war, in a civil war in heaven. And um, that war lasted for three days before um, God and the loyal angels, um, um, or before the loyal, before God finally intervened to help the loyal angels defeat Satan. Um, and then Satan and his followers, who are a third of the, the rebel angels were a third of the angels in heaven, um, are sent down to hell. And the poem begins or plunges in medias race. Do people know that phrase? What's it mean? Olivia, is that? Yeah. Yeah. Like in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, so the, it's the way James Bond movies start, which is um, Bond is, is chasing someone or jumping out of an airplane or something like that. It's like the action is boom, you're right there. So Paradise Lost starts um, with Satan and the rebel angels um, waking up in hell where they've been stunned into unconsciousness after falling from heaven for nine days and nine nights and figuring out what to do. And um, so the first two books of Paradise Lost are um, books with Satan and the fallen angels, and they are figuring out what to do now that they've lost this battle against God. And what is striking about them is um, how extraordinarily courageous they are and how committed they are to the ideal, or at least how committed some of them are, and Satan in particular, um, is committed to the ideal of freedom. And um, what hit one of his famous lines is, um, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not builded here for his envy, shall not drive us hence. And in my choice, um, um, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, so this argument for freedom over what another one of the rebel angels calls a state of splendid vassalage of um, being a servant um, in really, really wonderful surroundings, but still being a servant, um, better to be free in hell than to do that in heaven. So it's a rebellion against um, the uh, Christian God. And a lot of people, Blake, whom we're going to start with after we do Paradise Lost, most explicitly, and then in the later generation, Shelley almost as explicitly, and Byron almost as explicitly, regards Satan as the hero of Paradise Lost. Um, and Blake um, says of Milton, Blake actually, we're going to read this, wrote his own, he wrote three epic poems. We're going to read um, the shortest of them entirely. It's an epic poem called, wait for it, Milton. 
Um, and um, Blake also says in another work, the work called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which has the famous Proverbs of Hell in it, um, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, he says the reason that Milton wrote freely when he wrote of Satan, but in chains when he wrote of God and the loyal angels, was that he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. So that Milton, in Blake's reading of Milton, um, uh, Milton didn't, couldn't admit to himself because he was a Christian poet couldn't admit to himself that he was on Satan's side. But because he was a poet, he couldn't write a poem in which um, what happened to Satan and Adam and Eve could be justified. Um, And so Satan um, runs away with Milton in Blake's understanding of Milton. And, And Milton understands, though he doesn't want to admit that he understands, that Satan is the heroic figure who fights against um, almighty power, and yet for and on behalf of freedom he will do that. Um, And um, the Romantic poets in general um, revered Milton, um, thought he was the greatest of English poets, and in one way or another are responding, especially to the first two books of Paradise Lost. Um, so it's worth having those under your belt. Do you, did you find it? I did. It's not... It doesn't sound like much. Okay. So, reply, crumpled on her desk. Dear Bill, I've made a couple of sandwiches for you. In the icebox, you'll find blueberries, a cup of grapefruit, a glass of cold coffee. On the stove is the teapot with enough tea leaves for you to make tea, if you prefer. Just light the gas, boil the water, and put it in the tea. Plenty of bread in the bread box and butter and eggs. I didn't know just what to make for you. Several people called up about office hours. See you later. Love, Floss. Please switch off the telephone. Amazing. (laughs) Why is it amazing? Because there's there's so much else you could have eaten. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's a good point. It's like, look at all this other stuff you could have eaten. And I did it for you. I yeah, put it all out for you. I right. made the one thing I, I didn't want you to. And yep. I would move too, and she's like, don't remember to, like, and remember to, like, turn off the phone. It's like, I'm still in charge. Even if you ate my berry. <laughs> um, also, make it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, make it yourself. Which she also is, has to tell how to boil water, which is a really bad sign. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the... Uh, when the physicist and the mathematician are assigned the task of um, making tea and how they do it. There's actually a third person, but it doesn't matter. Uh, It's one of those science geek jokes. So um, there's there's a pot hanging from the wall, and um, they're assigned to make tea, and they figure it out. So both the physicist and the mathematician fill up the pot with water and boil the water and pour it over the tea leaves and drink the tea. Um, and then for the final exam, they're given a, a variation on the problem, which is there's a pot of water on the stove, make the tea, because it's the final exam, it's supposed to be easier. Um, so the physicist boils the water and pours it over the tea. The mathematician takes the pot, goes to the sink, pours the water into the sink, hangs the pot from the wall, and has now reduced it to the previous problem. Um, so 
<laughs> it's, yeah, it's not that good. <laughs> At least not the way I tell it. All right. Um, so um, let's start by... Um, yeah, let's just start. This is... Um, Let's start with the with home at Grasmere, which is the prospectus to the excursion. Um, and what I'll tell you about this is this is just as a way. Actually, let's not. Let's do that after we do Paradise Lost. Bring this in on Tuesday. So read the first two books of Paradise Lost and bring it in on Tuesday. Let's look at the two nurses songs um, by Blake on the other side of the page. Um, so do people know about the songs of innocence and of experience? Um, what do you know about them? Uh, I know the tiger. Okay, which, do you know which it is? No. Okay. I know the lamb from the sheep. All right, so which one do you think would be, it's the lamb. Uh, which one do you think would be the song of innocence? The lamb. The lamb, yeah, um, because it's a cute little baby lamb. Um, lambs are babies, so that's a redundancy. Um, so the lamb goes, little lamb who made thee, dost thou, can you recite it? No. <laughs> dost thou know who made thee, gave thee life, and bid thee feed? Bid thee feed through the dale and o'er the mead, gave thee clothing of delight, soft as clothing, woolly bright. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. Thou a lamb. And I, a child, we are both called by thy name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. So who made the lamb and who's called the lamb? Yeah, the lamb of God, which is Jesus, um, who's also known as the lamb of God. Um, if you remember Jubilate Agno from 18th century, those who took that class, that means rejoice in the lamb and the lamb that we're, you're rejoicing in is the Lamb of God. Um, then the tiger is tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or I could frame thy fearful symmetry. And, the, and then there's a whole, that's the first of a whole series of shocked questions. Who could make the tiger? What immortal hand or I could frame thy fearful symmetry? And these questions climax in the final question, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? So it's amazing to the singer of the tiger, which is a song of experience, that the same God supposedly who made the lamb also made the tiger. So a lot, not all, but a lot of the songs of experience balance the songs of innocence. So what happened was Blake, um, at the age of 30, wrote and published a book, self-published. He self-published all his books. He was an engraver and a printmaker, um, and he invented a new kind of engraving. Um, and he was a painter and artist. All the illustrations from Blake are his own. Um, published a book called Songs of Innocence. And um, the songs of innocence are just what they sound like, which are um, uh, songs sung by children, um, songs that come out of innocence. And then five years later, he published another book 
called Songs of Innocence and of Experience. So Songs of Experience isn't a separate book. It never came out as a separate book, but it rather was an expansion of the book called Songs of Innocence, Songs of Innocence and of Experience. And the Songs of Experience are um, songs in which um, the singers of those songs now know the truth of the world, or at least they believe they know the truth of the world. Uh, we'll talk more about this um, next week, but one thing to think about is that if you call a book Songs of Innocence, if that's your title for a book, what does that imply about you? That you're not. Does everyone see that? That if you're innocent, you don't know you're innocent. Um, Oscar Wilde makes a joke of this in The Importance of Being Earnest, um, where um, um, I think it's Cecily is keeping her diary, and someone says, oh, may I see it? And she says, oh, no, they are only the thoughts, the private thoughts of a completely innocent person um, who, um, which, which I, who therefore intends them for publication. <laughs> um, so the idea is if you think that you're innocent, um, or if you, if you the, the word innocent is a word that only has meaning to those who are not innocent. It's a really interesting word that way. Of course, people um, can understand, can, can know that they're called innocence or um, that uh, they know what the word means, but it's a way of being in the world. The idea is that once you lose your innocence, you can never get it back. So Songs of Innocence, uh, that's titled by someone who's not innocent. And so Songs of Innocence and of Experience um, is almost telling you um, it's almost as though the original title, Songs of Innocence, um, is already Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Not quite, but almost, or you could say it's something like Songs of Innocence from, from someone who is experienced, who is no longer innocent, who is imagining these songs um, and taking pleasure in imagining them because he's imagining something that's lost. Okay, so a lot of the songs of innocence have pendants, that is, corresponding poems in the song, songs of experience. The Lamb and the Tiger is one example. Another poem is called The Chimney Sweep, um, where there's an innocent version of the chimney sweep. Um, and we'll be looking at these in the experienced version of the chimney sweep. Um, Another one is there's, um, in the Songs of Innocence, there's the divine image, and in the Song of Experience, that gets um, paired with something called the human abstract. Um, so the divine image is about the wonderfulness of mercy, um, pity, um, hope, and love, and the human abstract is um, how these are all signs of bad things. Um, pity would be no more if we did not make somebody poor. Um, so, however, um, Blake is never interested in um, uh, doctrinaire predictable um, uh, pairings or systems. He actually hated systems, um, and so you can't make them all correspond. Um, he makes them correspond enough to see 
that the songs of experience is is um, um, a balance to the songs of innocence, but he's not interested in rewriting each song of innocence as a song of experience. However, two of them are the nurses' songs. Um, so what you have on the left hand side. Um, uh, plate 24 plate 24 because um, again these are um, books that he himself hand printed and hand colored these are um, actually in color these illustrations um, and um, uh, so the first nurse's song would someone read it? Ariel? Um, when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, my heart is at rest within my breast and everything else is still. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise. Come, come, leave off play and let us away till the morning appears in the skies. No, no, let us play for it is yet day and we cannot go to sleep. Besides in the sky the little birds fly and the hills are all covered with sheep. Well, well, go and play till the light fades away and then go home to bed. The little ones leaped and shouted and laughed, and all the hills echoed. Echo Ed. Echo Ed, yeah. Yes, make it rhyme. That's part of the pleasure of Blake, is making it rhyme. Um, That is, um, he will use nursery rhyme um, sounds, which require a little bit of the same um, um, pushing that you have to do to make a nursery rhyme work perfectly. Okay, so who's the speaker? The nurse. Yeah, and um, she's nurse here means nursemaid, um, Mary Poppins type, um, except without all the magic. Has anyone seen the new Mary Poppins movie? Um, I only know one person who saw it, and they really liked it, which surprised me. Okay. My mom liked it, and she loves Mary Poppins, right? All right, it got such terrible reviews. And it was like 9% on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Um, but maybe it's just something people like to hate. You got a good one in the New Yorker. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was good review. Okay. All right, interesting. Um, okay, so anyhow, it's, it's, it's um, that kind of nurse. Not a governess, but someone who's taking care of the children. So um, just paraphrase. When the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill... My heart is at rest within my breast, and everything else is still. Just quick paraphrase of that. Bye. Um, the nurse is at rest when she can hear the children because it means they're okay. Because it means they're okay. And they're nearby and they're not in danger. Yeah, and yeah. Like the simple pleasures of life. Uh huh. Like she's in the moment, and it's like the their voices of the children and the laughing is a grounding force. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. When laughing is heard on the hill, my heart is at rest within my breast, and everything else is still. What does that mean? Why does she add that? I feel like nothing else matters. Yeah. Like everything's okay. Okay, good. Everything's okay. Nothing else matters. Um, it, it's, it's all good. Um, and so she's happy. Um, then she calls to them. Then come home, my children. The sun has gone down, 
and the dews of night arise. Come, come, leave off play and let us away till the morning appears in the sky. So the dews of night could be dangerous. Um, we'll look at a Blake poem later on where he talks about the dews of night, um, a poem he wrote when he was, uh, when he was much younger, um, but, um, uh, or, and an incredibly beautiful poem. It's called To the Evening Star. Um, but the dews of night, you know, that's where, that is where things get cold and dank, not in the good sense of dank, um, that you guys use, but in the original sense of dank. And, um... The um, so that's one reason that you have to go home um, and she's taking care of them then come home my children the sun has gone down and the dews of night arise come come leave off play and let us away till the morning appears in the skies so let's go home um, let us away is a nice little moment that she's one of them and let us away till the morning appears in the skies um then who speaks the next stanza? The children. the children, yeah. No, no, let us play, for it is yet day, and we cannot go to sleep. It's too early for bed. How many times any of you babysit? Yeah, so this is familiar. Any of you ever babysat? Were, were any of you ever babysat? So that would be familiar also. You can think of Calvin maybe, too. Um... No, no, let us play, for it is yet day, and we cannot go to sleep. Besides, in the sky the little birds fly, and the hills are all covered with sheep. So um, the shepherd hasn't brought the sheep back to the sheepfold. The birds are still flying. It's not nighttime. All these natural things in the natural world, they're not afraid of night yet. Um, they'll go in when it's time to go in. And then what does she do? Yeah, so she's great. Well, well, go and play till the light fades away and then go home to bed. And then the little ones leaped and shouted and laughed <coughs> and all the hills echoed. Um, who speaks the last two lines? Yeah. Sorry? The, the little ones and um, No, the little ones leapt and shouted and laughed. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the narrator's the nurse, right? Um, yeah, is there anything odd about the um, narrative structure of that? Yeah, Tafar. Um, like, in the beginning, there's an association between her and the children. Uh, so it starts with, like, they're my kids. Like, they have this effect on me, but she's a little far, but there's still some connection. And then uh, in the middle stanzas, she joins them. Mm -hmm. And then, like, in the last one, she seems to, like, divorce herself away from them, almost like she's abandoning them. Um... Do you really see abandonment there? I mean, I agree with you that there's a distancing. Not not abandonment, like in the harsh sense, but like a separation from her and that. So it's like they're two different mm -hmm. things. Now. Okay, yeah. I, th I think, do other people see that or some something like that? I think that, that there's, 
I, your silence, I think, means no. Um, but notice that it begins when the voices of children. So it's a kind of <coughs> general um, description of herself. Here's what I like. When the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill, when that happens, my heart is at rest, present tense, within my breast, and everything else is still. So we get a, pres- uh, we get a kind of um, continuous present. That is, it's when this happens, then my heart is at rest. It's not a specific time that it's happening. It's um, here's the thing that I like. And when this thing that I like happens, then um, it's all good. Um, Then we get the little dialogue between them. She's calling them um, home. And um, that's given to us with the word then. That's an interesting word there. Then come home, my children. The sun has gone down. Um, And you could ask, um, how exactly is the word then functioning? Um, but it's something like um, when I think of this, um, then I'm thinking of um, a safe day being brought into a safe harbor. Um, and uh, the then here isn't come home because there's a monster out there. It's that it's all working and, and um, this is part of the completion of the day. Does that make sense? The, the word then there is very beautiful. Um, and, you know, it's, it's more beautiful if you don't pay too much attention to it, but pay enough attention to it to notice it. Um, that um, she's calling for them to come home, which might be a contradiction to, I like hearing their voices on the hill, and like hearing the laugh, I like hearing the voices on the green and the laughter, their laughter on the hill. Um, so why do I say come home? Well, because it's not the opposite of that. It's not, I like hearing this, now come home, so this all ends. It's, I like hearing this, and this is the completion of that. Um, so, yeah, let's then, let's bring this perfect day to its perfect close, something like that. But it's something that she likes in general. It's continuous. It, it will last forever, or so it seems. It's not something that comes to an end. And the then means, even with the coming of night, it's not coming to an end. Then come home, my children. The sun has gone down, and the dews of night arise. But they say, no, let's play. It's still day, as though it will be day forever. The very thing, the very atmosphere that she likes so much is something that the children agree with. No, no, let us play, for it is yet day. And somehow that's right. The then is another way of saying it is yet day, or it is yet the kind of life that I'm celebrating. And then she agrees. Well, well, go and play till the light fades away and then go home to bed. Um, And then we get this past tense, um, which is the distancing, I think, that you were describing. The little ones leapt and shouted and laughed and all the hills echoed. And so it's all great. They were happy. but we no longer get a continuous description. When this happens, then I'm happy. But rather we get the end of a single event. So I said, sure, you guys can stay out. And then they were happy and the hills were echoing the end. 
But it's not, think how different it would be if it were in the present tense. Um, the little ones leap and shout then and laugh and all the hills echo, can't quite make it rhyme, that, and all the hills echo with their, with their sound. Um, that would all be what makes her heart at rest within her breast. But now it's become just a little bit of the past. That is, what's been present tense at the beginning becomes past tense at the end. And um, I don't want to make anything like too much of that. Um, but it is worth noticing that, there, that um, she's describing something that she loved, whereas it begins with her describing something that she loves. So the first stanza is, here's what I really love, and the end is, um, that's something I really loved. That was a good day. And it seems, because that rhyme just always seems so forced. Echo um, like you don't have Yeah, you don't have to force the other one. So I think that kind of, and what, to force the rhyme, you have to really pronounce the past tense. Yeah. Um, so it's like kind of that dissonance nice, at nice. the end. Um, you get a temporal dissonance, you know, present and past, yeah. as well as an acoustic yeah. dissonance. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, all right, so now I'm going to ask a really odd question, which don't answer yet. Um, but there is, if, if I were to ask the question, who's the speaker of this poem? Um, the answer, there are two possible answers. Um, and in a sense, there are always two possible answers when you ask who the speaker of a poem is. And one is the actual speaker. Um, who may or may not be the poet. In lyrical poetry, the speaker does tend to be the poet. Um, in other kinds of poetry, that may not be so. In dramatic monologues, for example, it's not so. The speaker of to be or not to be. Um, it's a soliloquy, but the speaker is Hamlet and not Shakespeare. Um, and there are dramatic monologues where... Um, you know, there's a poem by Dunn which begins, busy old fool, unruly son, and the speaker's a woman. Um, and Dunn was very much not a woman in his um, sexual appetites. Um, but the speaker of that poem is. And um, uh, we make that distinction, sometimes more, sometimes less. I tend to think you should only make the distinction if you need to. Um, but, we did, but the distinction is always available to us, always possible. Um, so one possibility then is that it's the nurse, um, and that's the obvious answer. Um, and the other possibility is that it's Blake himself. Um, but I think there's yet another possibility. Um, yeah? God. Why God? Because it seems to, like, touch on like the idea of paradise lost about like freedom mm -hmm. and it's like if we take that into context it's like God is happy when we're free and happy um, but like when he wants like as the God in paradise lost like as when he wants a certain sort of law followed it's mm -hmm. not like well the God in paradise lost is kind of a dictator but the, that the idea is like we have freedom mm -hmm. to either follow or not follow. And then the choice that the kids make is to play in the dark. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like freedom into, yeah. 
Okay, but presumably they will go home, right? Maybe not. Um, <coughs> um, well, let's compare it to the Song of Experience, which we um, will have a minute to look at and which we'll pick up again on Thursday. Um, but I guess um, take a line like the little ones leapt and shouted and laughed um, and ask yourself, is that quite the same vocabulary? And maybe it is. Um, it's possible that I'm making too much of this, um, but I'm not. <laughs> it's a very English teacher admission there. Um, that is that the same vocabulary the little ones leapt and shouted and laughed as when the voices of children are heard on the green and laughing is heard on the hill? If you wanted to argue that those were different speakers, and I'm not saying that they are, but if you wanted to argue that they were different speakers, I mean, that it's much too crude to say they're different speakers because they're not. Um, but um, if you came upon two fragments and you wanted to know whether they were from the same poem or not, and you saw the first stanza of the nurse's song and then the last two lines, would you think they were from the same poem? Or what would the argument against their being from the same poem be? Let me just put it that way. Or maybe a simpler way of putting it would be to say, um, which one feels... No, I don't want to quite say it this way. What's the difference in the, in the diction or in the vocabulary, in the word choice? Yeah. Like in French, um, when the past is used, it's like a singular individual event mm -hmm. happened once. Yeah. And then this is like the imperfect, where it happened, it happened in the past, but it's like a recurring thing. It's like a recurring event mm -hmm. that happened. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's like someone's looking back, but they're looking back at something that happens mm -hmm. regularly. And then, so it's like almost like a basic story structure, like once upon a time, and then one day. Yeah. Okay. Um, look at the beginning of the experienced version of the nurse's song. We'll, we'll just read this, and I'll say one thing about it, and then we'll stop. Um, when the voices of children are heard on the green... Difference between the first one? Any difference? No. No. And whisperings are in the dale. Difference? No. Go on. What is the difference? Whisperings instead of laughing. And? Instead of the dale. Instead of the hill. The exact opposite. Yeah. And whisperings are in the dale, not are heard, but simply are in the dale. Why not are heard? They're whispering. They don't want to be heard. The days of my youth rise fresh in my mind versus my heart is at rest within my breast. The days of my youth rise fresh in my mind. Not her heart, but her mind. And um, they're rising fresh in my mind rather than being at rest within her breast. My face turns green and pale. Then come home, my children, the sun has gone down, 
and the dews of night arise, same two lines, your spring and your day are wasted in play, and your winter and night in disguise. And that's where it ends. So we'll talk about how much grimmer the second poem is, the experienced version, next week. But notice that the first lines can be the same. When the voices of children are heard on the grass, that can be the experienced nurse as well as the innocent nurse. What phrase would the experienced nurse not use? Maybe we'll just end it with this. What phrase would she not use? The answer to that might be, might it not, the little ones. It's really hard to think of her using that phrase. So if you look at the last two lines of the innocent version, the little ones leapt and shouted and laughed. The word that both nurses use is the word children for the children. That's fine. Um, But little ones has a kind of tenderness about it that the word children doesn't. It's not that children is an untender word. It's that it doesn't necessarily imply tenderness the way little ones does. It can be tender, but it doesn't have to be tender. And little ones kind of does have to be tender. Um, it's a word from the it's a phrase from the Bible and also from Shakespeare. Um, and it's thinking of the um, helplessness, the vulnerability of the children. Okay, let's stop there. Um, Just so you know, I'm podcasting this class, which I do from time to time. I haven't done it in um, several years, so if you miss a class, um, ask me for the link and I'll give it to you if you want to hear it. And um, So first two books, Paradise Lost, but bring the Xerox or bring Songs of Innocence. Now bring the Xerox in because I want us to look at the Wordsworth as well. Um, Bring the Xerox in on Tuesday, uh, which is a Brandeis Monday. And have a good weekend. You've earned it. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.